A Business Couch with Dr. Yishai, Episode 199. Welcome to The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai. I'm your host, Dr. Yishai Barkadari, psychologist and adaptability coach to entrepreneurs and business leaders. I believe that working on your business is more important than working in your business. If you want to achieve your business goals and dreams without the cost and pain of having to make every mistake yourself, then The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai is the podcast for you. I'm here to help you learn from the lessons of entrepreneurs and business leaders to help you work on yourself and your business so that you can save time, energy, and grow faster. For those of you new to the show, The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai presents three new episodes each week on Insight Sunday we dive into the minds of business leaders through insightful guest interviews. On Story Tuesday, we dig deeper with them and learn firsthand from their stories, hard-earned lessons, and experience. On Thrive Thursday, it's just you and me on the couch, where you'll hear scientific research, my thoughts, and tangible tactics to adapt and grow yourself and your business. Grab a proverbial seat and listen up so you can learn from the minds and mistakes business leaders and apply their wisdom to your life and business. Our story conversation is so packed and full of value that you're getting a double dose this week. In part one, Fabian shares the challenges and frustrations he experienced in HR that got in the way of success and the lessons he took from those experiences and failures. In part two, Fabian and I are going to dig deeper into mindset and how mental models impact every level of business. Before we dive in, I wanted to share that the Business Couch with Dr. Yishai is brought to you by Adaptability Coaching and Consulting. If you lead a seven-plus-figure business and want to reach the next level for yourself and your business, if you have passions, goals, and dreams and want to continue to strive as a team, a leader, and a visionary without risking burnout, if you have overcome challenges, developed wisdom, and know that adapting is not just for surviving, but a core part of thriving, then adaptability coaching is for you. With psychology and neuroscience-backed tools, the 3D adaptation framework can show you how to tap into and harness the way our brains are uniquely designed for adaptation. You can learn to harness and leverage adaptability tools and frameworks to grow yourself and your company. You can learn to become fast, flexible, and formidable. You can learn to hone yourself further, to proactively adapt, to thrive, instead of reactively adapting, just to survive. To learn more, go to dryishai.com slash coaching. Join me in welcoming back Fabian van Drenkam, co-founder of Alpio, a managing partner at the Accord Group Belgium Leadership Advisory Company and author of Disruption at Work. Welcome back, Fabian. Hi, thank you. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. I am so excited, so glad that you're here. And just as a quick recap, on Insight Sunday, you shared and talked about how you acquired Accord Group Belgium and what you kind of did and what you learned and how you thought 
and how your thought process really led you to understand about recruitment and leadership, that it's not enough to just look at traits, that you really need to look at and understand a much more complex way of thinking and seeing and leadership. And it's really important to really look at context and how people handle complexity and to go deeper into the motivations, the purpose, the why, as well as the drivers and the way that people think and their thought process in addition to their behaviors and also looking at their emotions and then what they do with them and how all of that works. We covered so much more than that. And if you haven't yet, make sure you go back and listen to that episode. And I just wanted to say thank you again for grabbing a seat with me on the business couch for Story Tuesday, where we dive deeper into your hard-earned lessons so we can all learn from them. I did want to start by asking about, can you share one of your most memorable lessons and bring us into that learning moment? What happened before, after, what was a key takeaway? At the beginning of my career, it started with seeing rules and regulations that didn't make sense and trying to understand why they were there and getting annoyed by them because they blocked you in your development. And then I was in, when I was in HR and was trying to understand what led to failure, how come that the competition was very successful, being aware that they also are a group of human beings that try to do their best. But how come that they were successful and that we have a tendency to fail? Where did it go wrong? That helped me to understand that at the end of the day, it had to do with all those mental models, that their perspective of reality, what was there to come, was different or broader. That probably led to all this of what I'm doing today. Mm. Uh, Probably the most important experience I had. So what I'm hearing is that in your experience in HR, there were a couple of things that really struck you. One is that there were all these rules and regulations, and you found that they ended up being much more obstacles to development than they really facilitated development. And that led to you being frustrated and then also being curious about why do they exist? What are they doing here? And in tandem with that or along with that was that you noticed that in the environments in which you were trying to cultivate and find and put people in the right place, get the right people, put them in the right place, that you found that that there was more of a tendency to struggle or fail with that where you were working versus other companies. And so you got both frustrated and curious about, well, how do you figure out and and what's going on? What's the difference here? Especially if you're applying some of the more kind of well-known and well-used and even recommended, even best practices as far as different assessments and, and ways of making decisions. And so what I'm hearing is that it was, there's a lot of frustration and aggravation, and there was also a lot of curiosity in seeking answers. Yeah, absolutely. Because systems that we create are based on the mental models we have. And if they don't fit to your mental model, you feel annoyed. Mm. And if you build a business on a mental model that is no longer relevant, you will be out of business. So becoming aware of that was probably uh, the most important learning experience. Mm. So I'm hearing that this experience was one in which you were really paying attention to your mental models and the mental models that were really prevalent in the leadership in the company or companies that you were working at. And you started to really notice or see how different companies had different mental models and different leadership had different mental models. And the people who were making those decisions about hiring had different mental models. And that really made a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really curious to hear, I know that on Insight Sunday, you mentioned a couple of things that I wanted to get back to. One of them was that your perspective is that Elon Musk is really able to paint the future and kind of anticipate or look at context. And I'm really curious about how you kind of see that happening or unfolding. What kind of gives you that impression? Well, if you send your car to the moon, uh, 
when you're able to do that. First of all, why do you want to do that? It's maybe a stupid example, but if you see what he created and when he started the, the business with when, when he cashed on his previous company and he started Tesla, his purpose was twofold. First of all, to show that driving an electric car can be fun also. Mm. It was not the purpose of the other people in the automotive industry. Mm. So he had a completely other perspective on personal ambition mm. within that industry. And the underlying purpose was to improve mobility. And he proven that he's able to do that. So he's far beyond current capabilities of many people. If you see how he redesigned the rockets, how his uh, satellites uh, were uh, flying around the world today, it's quite impressive to be able to do that. And that's not only based on his knowledge. He's an engineer like many other engineers, but the way he looks at things and what he takes into account is far more broader with far less anxiety, probably for the same reason, mm. which is allowed. Of course, he has the money to do things, but he mm -hmm. could have done other things. He could have retired with his money, mm -hmm. he decided to do otherwise. So money is not his driver. Is be um, I would call him probably captain of the universe, trying to figure out the limits of that universe, mm. which is something different to trying to understand the behavior of your client. Mm. A completely other perspective and a far more complex mental model. Mm. That's what he's looking at. And that's the reason I'm saying that he's mm. one of those people who are genius. Mm. So what I'm hearing is that in a way, when you call him captain of the universe or kind of playing with the limits of the universe, to me, what comes to mind is this analogy of he treats the universe like a sandbox. And what he does is he picks up all the toys that exist. And for him, that's different technologies. And he asks himself, how can I play with this? What can I make out of this? What could I do with this? What happens if I throw this outside the sandbox? Where does it go? What does it do? In a way, there's a part of the way in which he treats some of these things, which many adults and leadership look at it as serious limits to be respected. He treats it with a curiosity and a willingness to almost throw some of it out the window just to see what happens or kind of throw it up into the air just to see what happens. And it's that kind of, I would call it youthful playfulness, but it's also applied in a very strategic, very clear goal-oriented way, meaning there's a lot of seriousness involved in all of it. And at the same time, there's a, a kind of much younger exploratory perspective that he takes that's much more future-oriented, that's much more, well, whatever we do have, not only how can we improve it, but how can we use that to make something or create something or build an experience or can we? And he asked the question, can we? Or he says, let's try, or let's see what happens when we try, which is a very different perspective to take. Yeah. So what he does is he, he is the one who always redefines the context and creates new context. He's building new ecosystems. That's what he's doing. That's new context he's creating. He's not adapting to it. He's creating them. Uh, at full, which leads to so many new opportunities for many organizations to follow. And um, so he's contributing in his way to economical growth, not only for his business, but for all the businesses that comes afterwards. And that was his doing. So he's building a completely mm -hmm. new ecosystem each time. In a way, he's creating new industries by uh, facilitating what I think we discussed on Insight Sunday as quantum leaps. And there's a lot of small increments that are involved. At the same time, he's constantly asking himself about quantum leaps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah. I wanted to also ask what kind of lessons you've learned or how you've learned different lessons about mental models and the consequences that can happen when leadership has either outdated mental models or simplified mental models. Yeah, well, I have two important ones. One is a more rational one and other is more an emotional one. From a rational perspective, me also made mistakes based on my mental model. Hmm. Trying to build something of which I believed that it would be effective when I was in HR, setting in place performance management systems, uh, competence models more than 20 years ago, and three years later had to conclude that were non-effective. That we lost market share anyway mm. because the client wasn't involved. Mm. Yeah, I didn't take that into account. I looked at my system in HR. How can I improve it? Put it mm. in place. And but the client didn't care. The customer who bought our products was not interested if I was willing to or not creating a uh, competence model or other stuff in new resources. Mm. So that was my first lesson being aware that we all create our realities and must be very cautious to not make convictions out of that. Mm. And the second one is that what I've learned is you can, we all have our value system, what we consider important, how we like to be treated. Well, I've learned that you should treat people based on their value model, not on your own. Mm. If you want people to tick in a positive way, don't look at what you consider important, but look at what they consider important. If you're tolerant, you tend to be very tolerant towards other people. But if people want rules to engage to, give them rules, don't be tolerant. Hmm. Um, if people seek autonomy to be at their best, uh, help them to guide that autonomy. Whatever your own values are, it's not about what makes you tick, it's about what makes them tick. And there we often make a mistake when we, we start imposing cultural values in an organization that we tend that the next day everybody will wake up and will live up to that. That's not how it works. Values are emotional systems we have, and it's very hard. It takes a lot of time to change them. Hmm. So it's more better to understand those values and to act upon. How can we make the best of that to guide them in the direction we all need to go? Hmm. So what I'm hearing is that it's really important and it's more important to relate to others. And especially when it comes to business and your clients, it's more important to understand the value system and the emotions that underpin the value system for the clients than it is to try to just impose or live your own. That's something that I see a lot of. I actually call this, there's a process I call it, I call it pitting. And this pitting process is a belief or a view that only one system or value or emotion or way that that emotion gets expressed can win out or succeed. And so it becomes this kind of battle between, let's say, me living my values and then there being space for someone else to live theirs, especially if they're an employee or they're a customer or a client. And having that perspective is less nuanced, it's less complex, and it tries to collapse everything. And it really only focuses on the values of the self rather than recognizing, acknowledging that there are values that we each have ourselves. There are also values that are very much present in our own teams and the people on our teams, as well as in our customers and our clients. And that's going to be the biggest driver for them and their behavior, their choices, as well as the performance that you have in your teams. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so I wanted to dig into that a little bit more, if you don't mind. And 
ask, how do you understand values and their emotional underpinning? These kind of mental models and the way in which people make decisions. Yeah, they're, they're an important part of who we are already uh, at birth. Mm-hmm. They set our nervous system in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not about attitude. It's about feelings of what you feel. And with that feeling comes a goal and an, a belief system. Mm-hmm. The goal to be yourself as one example, and the belief that everybody has the right to express his capabilities and emotions. The goal to maintain your own comfort and the belief that in order to do so, we need to maintain stability and solidarity. Hmm. The goal to enhance yourself, disrespect of others, and to live your ambitions. Or the goal to contribute to the well-being of others and the belief that we are all equals, that we are here to help each other. Hmm. So emotions give rise to goals which have embedded beliefs that really kind of drive them or underpin them. That's very interesting. I often think about emotions, both as a therapist and also in the kind of coaching and consulting work that I do. And one thing that I very frequently talk about is most people view emotions as an outcome, as a result of something. I view it as a process. It's actually in the middle of two things. It is not just a response to something. It carries with it a number of things, a push, a pull, a driver, a motivation. And it also carries with it a great deal of data about our current situation and about our future. And for that reason, an emotion is not just something that comes after. It is something that drives us forward, sometimes to the left or the right. Sometimes, you know, it, it tells us to slam on the gas or the brakes, and sometimes it will motivate us. It'll really try to get us going. Other times it will try to get us to hold back or stop. It's in essence a dynamic interaction between your beliefs, your frame of reference, and the environment. Mm. So it's not static. Uh, No, I think of it, yeah. It's not output, it's the process itself. It is. It happens by nature. It happens automatically. Mm. You can try to control it, but you cannot try to get rid of it. I mean, people try to get rid of it all the time. And I I know that. I see that all day when people try to get rid of it. The number of people who come in and say, can you just help me avoid or get rid of my anxiety or my sadness or my anger? And what I often find, very much what you're saying, I view emotions as the core, the keystone of adaptability. In fact, emotions are the process through which our brain helps us adapt. Yeah ourselves and our behavior, as well as our environment. It is the keystone of adaptability. And what that means is when someone comes in and they say, can you help me surgically or psychologically surgically remove my anxiety? My answer to them is, even if I could, do you really want me to do that? Let's look and understand it a little bit better. And then let's ask ourselves if it's actually really helpful. I'd love to ask some of these questions. For example, someone who who comes in and says, you know, I think anger is a really unhelpful emotion. It's really messing with my relationships and it's it's really affecting my work and X and Y and Z. And can you just help me stop being so angry? And I say, okay, let's understand anger. I mean, I do this in a different way. I'm doing this in much more accelerated communication here. But one of the things I say is, okay, let's look at and understand anger and when it shows up, because anger does not show up at random. It actually shows up under fairly well-defined parameters. And so when a phenomenon shows up under parameters, it often, especially for an organism, has purpose. 
I like to call that the three P's. It is their parameters for emotions, which means they have purpose, and they also predict. They're predicting our future to help us adapt. So those are three P's that our emotions have. So I say, let's look at the parameters for something like anger. If somebody gets you your favorite meal, and it's the middle of the day, you haven't eaten lunch, you're starving, and, and somebody orders your favorite meal, and it shows up right to your doorstep or right to your desk, are you angry? No. You're more likely experiencing a very different emotion. It's a whole other set of parameters, right? But what if somebody crosses a line, whether they step over the line of, of respect for you, or they cross over a line of making a decision that is really in your purview, or they cross over a line in a way that threatens your safety. Well, then are you angry? That's much more likely. Well, okay. Now that we understand that anger shows up on our particular parameters, let's understand why it might show up. So what would the purpose of anger be? What does it do? What, what does it want for you? I love that question. What does this emotion want for you? Not what is it doing to you? And it's very much the future orientation as opposed to just in the present, what's going on, right? Which yeah. I know you talk about when it comes to business. So what does anger want for you? A lot of people have difficulty articulating it because it's a very different question than they've ever asked them themselves. And frequently what shows up after some amount of conversation is, well, anger wants me to know and understand that one of my lines got crossed. And then it presses very hard to make sure that that isn't happening again. I said, okay, so what happens to your anger? Or how does your anger show up? Well, I get angry at people. People make me mad and I get angry at people. I said, is anger about the other people though? And sometimes they'll start by saying yes. And I say, is it really about them or is it about your lines? And it, that getting crossed. Yeah. And frequently what happens is it comes to help them. I said, what does a world look like if you didn't ever experience anger? Would you have any idea? Would you get the data? The three Ds, data, direction, and drive. Would you get the data that one of your lines has been crossed? No. Okay. Would you be directed to address that and secure that line to prevent it from happening or continuing to happen? No. Would you be driven? Would you feel that same urge or push, the drive, the motivation to do something about this? No. Okay. So what does a world look like if we could extract anger from everybody, which some people would say would make a much more peaceful world? I look at it and I say, if there's no anger, I have no idea when somebody is violating me, my body, my wallet, my relationships. I have no idea when someone is engaging in a violation for me. And I have no mechanism through which to respond to that, which means the world would then be full of perpetual violations. Everybody would be violating each other. And there'd be no ability to adapt or respond to that. So you want me to surgically remove your anger, at which point you would lose your ability to understand and know what your lines are and to be directed to paying attention to that and to be motivated and the answer to that's no, which leaves the question, well, what do you do about it? And the answer that I have is, will you learn not to avoid or trying to make your anger go away, not to ignore it or not to push it away, but rather how to join it or how to have it join you? How to, I like to say, harness it. I become aware of it. Yes. How to use that awareness. The emotion, its job is to get us to be aware. The process someone needs to undergo to not be aware of their emotion is a process of continuously disconnecting. It's a mental model that views and relates to their emotion, even in their behaviors and in their thought process, and as, as well as their emotion process, as if it is not important or not worth or worthy of existence. And that's a mental model I frequently encounter, not just as a therapist, but all over the place. But they are embedded illusions, eh? Thanks for joining us today on The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai. If you enjoyed today's episode, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It helps grow the show and gives more people like you the ability to learn and grow. 
You can also click the share button to share today's episode directly with someone you know who would enjoy it. The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai podcast artwork is made by Sam Barkadari, show notes by Yishai Barkadari, and music by www.purple-planet.com. The advice and opinions of the host and guests are our own. I'm a psychologist, but not your psychologist. The conversations and content of this podcast do not contain or create any psychology practice, diagnosis, or therapist-patient relationship with either the guest or the listener. So do your own research before using anything from this podcast. Thank you for listening. Remember, our thoughts and reactions affect our actions. By listening, we can learn from the challenges others face and the choices they make so that we can make better decisions and get better results. 